Well, good morning again, uh, everybody. Welcome again, everyone online. Uh, for the next few weeks, uh, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a deeper dive into Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, the first of his two, this one's called, we know as 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're just going to look at, mostly because of time, a few passages in the beginning. And we're going to look at, in particular, I want to focus on some of the things that Paul says about what it means to be a Christian community, about what it means to live together as Christians and, and to just to live as Christians. Because you have to remember when Paul wrote this letter, all of Paul's letters, he wasn't thinking that he was going to be writing scriptures or adding to the scriptures. Paul was writing letters to congregations, mostly ones that he had planted. And there was some, they would always write because something had come up. There was a problem. And usually the pattern was Paul would go into a town and he'd plant the church, he'd get it started. He'd then pass it off to someone else and then he would uh, go on to the next place, end up in jail, he ended up in jail many times, and then from prison he would write a letter because someone would come to him and, you know, he'd say he's sitting in Ephesus and they'd say, hey Paul, you got to hear what's, going, what's happening in Corinth since you left. The place is a mess. And then they, then they would rattle off all these problems going on and then Paul would give his letter. And so then he'd write this letter saying, you know, telling him to try to, you need to change this or correct that. But rather than just say, you should change this or correct this because I say so, Paul makes an argument. This is why we should change this. This is why we should do this. This is why we take this position. And the why parts is where we get his theology. This is stuff the professors always love, is the, the, the build up, the explanation. Um, and, but, and what happened in the early church is these letters started getting passed around and people really liked those explanations because they had a universal quality to them. You know, church problems tend to be, uh, you know, we, we, you get a bunch of pastors together, they can all list their problems. And it's amazing how many of them often have the same thing, right? There's a universality to it. Uh, so that's how it kind of became scripture. But it's also, I think, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is also a good book to look at on how to be a church because uh, he's dealing with people and people problems and recognizing that just because we're all believers and we all care and we all try does not mean that uh, we all always get along or that everything goes well. And um, so, uh, and today, today we, get a, to get, today we get a really good passage. It's one I'm sure you've heard before where Paul's trying to explain to the people in Corinth, in this Greek city, why it is that, why it is that they should not be ashamed to talk about Jesus having been crucified. Why the cross isn't an embarrassment or something that they should try to downplay or something to not talk about with their friends, but something that's central to who we are. And this is a, a question. Why is the cross not a shameful thing? Why, why are we talking about this? Because everyone around, everyone in the culture thinks we're crazy. They, they, they think we're nuts. All the Greeks around us, they, they, they think this is the, the weirdest thing ever. See, crucifixion, go back to the Roman world, crucifixion, it was torture, but it wasn't just torture. It was a sign of humiliation. It was intended to just crush you and rob you of any dignity or self-respect 
or any sense of authority you might have had, Romans had lots of ways to kill people, you know, or they had lots of ways to punish people. They could just send you off to row a boat for the rest of your life or send you into a salt mine or something. If they crucified you, it was usually because they were trying to make a statement. Whether that statement was tough on crime, whether that statement was putting down a rebellion, the point was to make a statement and to do it in the most humiliating way possible. And so you would take someone and you would strip them all down. And I know that when we get our crucifixes, Jesus has a strategically placed loincloth, but that's probably not how it really happened. But sometimes historical inaccuracy is okay. Um, but the point, and, and but there's a reason for that. The reason was that, that that could be, they didn't want to leave you even one little strip of dignity. Nothing. Total humiliation to rob you of any last sense you had, right? And then the, the process itself of killing, you know, was not one like if you're beheading, you just boom, you're done. Crucifixion went on and on and on. It would take hours. Some people, it would take days to die by crucifixion. And so the point was to watch, watch, watch your, there goes your proud rebel, watch them squirm, right? Because what would happen with crucifixion is they tied you with ropes. The nails were just to make it hurt more. You didn't hang by the nails, you hung by ropes. And then you would, you would hold up, but your arms could only hold so long, right? You get tired, so then you give up and you collapse. Well, after a while of this, your lungs start to crunch in and you can't breathe. So then to breathe, you pull yourself up and you go, uh, uh. but as soon as you do that, your arms start to hurt. So then you let down again. And this would go on hours and hours, days and days. And the point was that they would sit there and then the Romans would make fun of you and to watch you squirm, watch you struggle, to make a point too about power. You think you're powerful, Mr. Rebel. People want to look at your rebel there, see how powerful he is. Watch him gasping for breath. He's nothing compared to the might of Rome. There was a whole point to this, right? It was a demonstration as well. And there was a belief that was very common in the ancient world that if I win, it's because my God is behind me, and if you lose, it's because your God either isn't behind you or is weaker than my God. And you'll find that all over the ancient world. You get some of that language in the Old Testament too, but the Romans believed it. Well, clearly, you know, if this Jesus guy is so great, how come, you know, how come I, you know, I... You know, a follower of Mercury and Jupiter. How come we took him out? This proves to everybody out there, see, the Roman gods are the right ones. They're at least the more powerful ones. It was a demonstration of power. So, how come Jesus is not someone to be ashamed of? How come his death is not something that we're embarrassed of and try to hide from and not talk about? Paul says, he says right here in um, verse 23, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We proclaim what they make fun of. We embrace what they reject. He goes on, verse 26, consider your own call, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Can we get the background slide out? <laughs> Clear the, there we go. 
We'll do this again. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. We're turning things on their head here. In dying, sacrificing, loving unto death, we are being godly. It's saying that we aren't taking the path of the conqueror, we are taking the path of the defeated. And that's still a hard, and that's still a hard idea for Christians. I think it's still a hard sell. This idea that the godly path isn't the path to conquest and victory, but the path to loss. I used to say, I used to say a lot, and I probably will again, because it sounds really cool. We win when we lose. In losing, we win, right? And, and I said that because I think there was a part of me that didn't want to acknowledge that the, the, it didn't have a happy ending. I'm, I'm an American. We're all Americans. We want a happy ending, right? Maybe if this was France, it would be easier to get to the end and, get to the end and go, there is no happy ending. It just ends. But we like a happy ending. I can't just say we lose. I have to say, by losing, we win. So that the losing becomes just, just a blip on the road. Right? It's, 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 the, it's the battle, right? It's the battle where the hero almost dies right before he pulls out his magic ring and makes that, or I'm sorry, five magic rings and makes Thanos go away. Right? But that's, that's not what the Bible says. More and more, more and more, I'm, I, I've come to think that maybe I should say, in losing, we take the path of godliness and life. We embrace the losing path. And it's hard because as people, we're drawn to success and power. We, 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 we want that. We're attracted to that. We want to be at the popular table with the people that other people want to be with. We don't want to be at the table with the people who can't get in anywhere else. We'd rather be desired than live on the island of misfit toys. We are drawn to winning. We idolize winning. We make a cult out of winning. And we know that winning sells. We know that winning sells. Even in churches, you know, we, we, we take classes on how to give a winning appearance to the public. So people come in and go, oh, look, oh, you're successful. Oh, they're doing really well. You don't want to, you, the worst thing you want to do for your church growth is to look like you're not winning. Oh, they're struggling. Oh, I don't think that place is doing as well. Oh, what, 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 is that Jesus? You know? But we are drawn to that. It's human nature, I think, you know, to be drawn to strength, to want to bask in it, to be around it. We don't want to hang out with what is perceived as losers. But isn't that Christianity? I mean, what about the Paul who said, God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low to, and despised to reduce the things that are not. He doesn't say, I chose the low and despised to make them into not low and despised. He took the low and despised to reduce those who are not. He took what was shameful to reduce the non-shameful. This is kind of leveling stuff here, isn't it? 
I mean, when you think about it, I always used to read over that reducing line. I'm like, wow, he's reducing. We're not just exalting shame. We're... I know there's that common belief out there. And, and, we always have, and we have to deal with it. We have to confront it. That losers are just people who haven't done the hard work of winning yet. That, that the only difference between the wealthy and the powerful and those who are well-desired is, is, is work ethic and morals. So losers are just lazy, could-be winners. And there's a couple problems with that. They don't jive with the world as it is. And one, of course, is that to be a winner, you have to have losers. You know, in every league, one team gets the trophy, everyone else doesn't. You can't all get a trophy. Well, I mean, you can at kid soccer, you can all get a trophy. I got to a point where I was like, okay, can we just at least make them medals so I can have one bar and just hang them all up there? But, you know, in the NFL, one team wins the Super Bowl. Someone has to be at the bottom of the table. Someone has to be the New York Jets every year. <laughs> I, 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 would, I, I tend to watch, I, I worked really hard to find which NFL team was the one to make fun of. Um, <laughs> I tend to watch more soccer, but it's a kind of similar thing that, that they do in European soccer, where they cycle through coaches all the time, you know, and a team will do really well, you know, and then, and then suddenly they'll be on a three-game losing streak and, oh, out with the coach, boom. I'm like, why do these guys keep signing up to be these coaches? They must have really good buyout packages. You know, I wouldn't sign up to do some of these clubs, man. There, there literally was a guy, he won the whole European championship. Like, wow, you would think that would be job security for the next year? Nope. Had a few game losing streaks, out you went. And even the fans were like, dude, what happened? Well, somebody's got to be the loser. Somebody's got to lose. You can't win every time. That's the nature of the game, right? And the second thing, of course, is there's just, you know, we're born differently. We're born differently. We have different genetics. We have different strengths. We have different... You know, abilities, different muscle masses and heights. I mean, I could have, at my peak, and, 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 I'm, and I just turned 50, so I'll openly admit, I'm not at my peak. <laughs> I feel pretty good, I'm not at my peak. If I, even if when I was 17, 18, if I would have played basketball every blessed last second of every minute of every hour of every day, and I would have had the best coach and the best trainer and the best everything, I would not have come within 100 million yards of LeBron. LeBron, I remember as a kid, they're reading this thing like, there's this kid in Ohio that's really good. His name's LeBron. He's being raised by a single mom. I was like, wow. How does the kid, you know, why? He's got genetics. He's got really good genetics. He's like, what, six foot eight, six ten. He's got arms like this. I can't get arms like this. <laughs> I tried in high school. I lifted with the football team. Nope. I, I am destined. God looked at me and said, Thou shalt be skinny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can't change that. I can't change that. He's definitely the best. But I couldn't beat him. I'm not born in a way that I could. And then, of course, we can't control what kind of family or social class we're born into, right? You know, one, one kid's born into parents who, you know, have, have the money to get personal trainers and 
dietitians and, and sports medicine and can pay for all those out-of-town weekend club tournaments. The other one, the other one's foods, what do they call it, food scarce, goes to bed every few nights hungry because his mom didn't make it to the food bank. Well, is he lazy? I mean, you can't really train to win if you can't eat, can you? Idolizing winners sometimes feels a little bit like congratulating people on how they're born. And yes, you can blow an opportunity, and you can squander your inheritance, and you can choose to not work out the muscles you've been given, and you can do lots of stupid stuff to blow it, but you can't blow an opportunity you haven't been given, right? So let's get back to the cross. What's it got to do with the cross? Jesus was executed by Rome. Rome was a powerful empire, the biggest in the world at their time. And, and how did Rome get that way? Well, they didn't get that way because they were more moral. If you know anything about Rome, they were debauched, as you can imagine, the Roman elite. It wasn't because they were kinder and had gentler hearts. They massacred whole civilizations, enslaved millions. It wasn't because they were more thrifty with their money. The Colosseum literally used to have boats in it. They had the money to bring water down from the mountains, fill up the Colosseum, fill it full of ships, have the ships destroy each other and everybody kill each other, and do it again day after day. They had money to burn. Rome got that way because they were the biggest and the most brutal and the most successful at killing others. That's it. They were better at killing people than Carthage could kill people. They were better at killing people than Sparta could kill people. And their ability to kill people and be brutal helped them expand and expand and expand. That's it. The difference between Jesus Christ ending up on a cross and Pontius Pilate sitting there in his palace it isn't because Pilate was a better person who was chaste and upright and thrifty. Pilate was born Italian to wealthy parents, and he was brutal. And that was his job, and that's the job Caesar gave him. Go to, go, go to Israel and kill Jews until they shut up and do what they're told. Period. And if he would have been kind and caring and compassionate and thrifty, Rome would have deported and gotten rid of him right away. You don't rule an empire by being nice. And Jesus over here, he's born Jewish to lower working class parents, and he didn't kill people. It is precisely because Jesus was loving and closer to God that he died. His shame, his death, his weakness, his humiliation is the very proof that he is God. So to be like God, to go on the godly path, you need to take the path of the humiliated God. You see, the point isn't that the losing was the unfortunate blip on the path to the victorious conquest. If that was the point, why did Jesus not come back from the dead, walk up to Pilate and go, nah, 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 can't touch me. He didn't. I always wondered that as a kid. You came back from the dead, why don't you get a little bit of, you know, payback or whatever they call it. No, didn't do that. God doesn't want to transform losers into winners. 
He wants people not, he, he wants kind of everyone to be losers. He doesn't promise victory. He offers a life of holiness. It, it, it's as if the world, you picture it as like your giant obligatory school cafeteria, right? And Jesus comes back and he says, I'm going to go sit at the reject table. And then, and then he speaks up and he gets a little mouthy and starts criticizing all the top dogs and the queen bees. You're doing this wrong. You're beating up on that guy. You excluded that one. You made fun of that one. And they're like, let's shut up that Jesus guy. He's messing with the status quo. Let's beat him up and put him in his place. The point isn't that Jesus is going to come and sit at the reject table and teach him how to box so they can put the bullies down and teach them how to throw touchdowns so they can get at that table and make fun of someone else. That's not the point. The point is not to take the rejects and make them popular. The point is maybe we shouldn't desire to be popular at all. The point is losing is the way. It's not the way to winning, it's just the way. And this makes Jesus' message foolishness even to believers. We don't want to be losers, so we, we try to twist that message about Jesus being the loser and say, well, eventually he won. You know, you might, you, you might suffer for Jesus, eventually you win. Well, I mean, eventually we are raised from the dead, yes. But what if we rejected all, the, all this kind of talk of winner-loser, got rid of that language completely, and, and said that the church was not, not even going to play that game, that we were just going to be one giant table? What if we said that we were just going to reject all the plans to even try to be popular? What if we said that we would put our greatest value on those who have the least and are the least loved and focus on a community like that? I mean, that was the early church in Corinth. They had a few people who did really well, but they had a lot of slaves, prostitutes, dock workers. They didn't always get along. In fact, most of the time they didn't get along. But Paul always ends up saying, that as followers of Jesus, we're not going to embrace the path to winning, but we are going to embrace the path to losing, and we're going to do so without shame. We're not going to let them shame us into not doing it. Because what looks wise, what looks foolish to them, is wise to us. And that is the way of the cross. Amen.